You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. This podcast exists because I love talking to people who are excited about the work they do. This particular episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Simon Erickson, leader of the Motley Fool Explorer Investing Service. He's got some really useful ways of looking at investing. I had a lot of fun learning from his approach. On a related note, I've put together an article about how successful investors find a certain style, system, or strategy that works really well for their personality and desired lifestyle. You can put it on the show notes. But for Simon's part, his wheelhouse is really centered around the growth side of investing, particularly investing in disruptive innovation, a topic that has come up a few other times on this podcast. So anyway, hope you enjoy and learn something cool. Yeah, what are you up to today? Oh, just doing some stuff here and there, looking for some opportunities in this ugly, deep in the red market day. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something I actually wanted to ask you about. So I think it's like a thing that a lot of people uh, struggle with. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of you have to go back basically 10 years before we've had a real market correction. Um, these are actually relatively normal, but if you don't know that, you think the sky is falling, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, so how, how do you think about this? I, just with your own like, personal investment philosophy, I saw you had a, a tweet you put up earlier today. Do you mind just kind of sharing just like your like framework for thinking about it and uh, like how to stay sane? Yeah. And, you know, Nicholas, I mean, the way I think about it is you have to have risk for the stock market to work, right? If you want something that's just going to go up steadily every year, you're going to get a little bit of interest on that. You, you buy a bond, you buy a T-bill, you know, you'll get a, a smaller return on something like that than something that, that, that is going to have a risk like the stock market is. Stock market's long-term return for the S&P, uh, at least for the, the recent you know history, has been 10.5% a year, which is fantastic, but it never looks like 10.5% every year, year after year. You get some some years that are up 20, 22%. We've seen those in recent history too. And you're going to have other years that are going to have to counteract that to get the long-term average down to that. So on days like this, you know, if you think about this in terms of one year, yeah, it probably hurts. You got a lot of investors that are losing money. And that's no fun. Nobody likes to see their account go down. At least I don't like to see my account go down. I prefer it to go up. But for the market to work the way that it does, you have to have years like this to counteract. And if you look over 10-year periods instead of one-year periods, uh, you tend to be very happy to be invested in the stock market. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that you do uh, to kind of turn pain into strength? I mean, the best thing that I can think of to do is to have a buy list. You know, the best thing to do is to be prepared where you say, you know, I've really been wanting to buy that company, but I'm a little skittish on this. I'd like to see it come down for whatever reason. Maybe you have a, maybe you have a stock target price that you're looking for. Maybe you're, you're seeing that you think it's a little bit too much optimism in the stock price. Day. Whatever the reason is. What I personally do, which works well for me, is, is to just have a list that says these are stocks that I'm interested in. And when there's a correction like this, that's when you want to pull the trigger and buy something rather than when all the optimism is already baked in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that kind of dovetails into another thing I was curious to ask you about. So there's like lots of different kinds of investors. Like early in his career, Buffett was uh, very much like a cigar, but kind of guy buying a dollar for 50 cents. But then on the other side of things, you have people who are entirely growth or entirely primarily like quality and stability. Uh, you know, there's, it kind of runs a gamut and there's not necessarily like a one size fits all approach for everyone. But um, what are the things that you look at and that works best with like your individual philosophy and personality? Yeah, this is a really good question, especially because it's getting harder and harder to figure out what defines a value investor versus a growth investor. Uh, the way I tend to think about it is where do you spend your time? How do you do research and how do you invest in, in stocks? You know, if you're looking more at 
quantitative aspects where you say, okay, this is the current PE ratio. Here's the cash flow yield. This is more of the valuation of the company. I think that's how you would define more or less a value investor. Somebody who's trying to buy a dollar for 80 cents or 50 cents like Warren Buffett used to be. Growth investors are basically saying the stock price is not fully appreciating what this company is capable of in the future. And what that generally means is when markets are changing, growth investors are looking at what they think the market will look like five or 10 years in the future and which companies will capture that different looking market than today. That's riskier because markets are changing and no one really has a crystal ball or his name Nostradamus these days. But it's also very rewarding when you do see the research that goes in how our industry is changing, why is this changing, and where the companies are going to benefit from that. That's how I would kind of think of as a growth investor. And that's more or less the style that I subscribe to as a stock market investor, too. Yeah, it seems like uh, The Motley Fool in general it tends to be on more of that side of things. So in terms of like your own individual progressions, do you remember kind of what your first like handful of investments were and how those worked out for you? Yeah, sure. So my my first investment, I guess, in the stock market was probably General Electric. I was employed there and, you know, contributed basically every chance I got to the employee stock plan, you know, the 401ks that they would offer. And so I built up a pretty good position in that. They were a very diversified company, so they had a lot of moving pieces, which made it very complex to actually analyze the stock. I still think today GE is a tough stock to analyze. And, uh, you know, that hasn't turned out so well for GE investors that have held through the long term. GE's definitely got their problems today. Uh, I sold my stake uh, a long time ago. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a good learning experience and kind of like figuring out how businesses work and how they make money and why that translates into stock prices. You had like a large personal stake in this. What, what made you decide to sell it? Because that's the thing that's probably, uh, it's not like an original thought that I've had, but someone else pointed out, you know, there's like a million books on like what to buy, how to buy. Uh, how to make investments, but then um, for selling stock, there, there's like, I think a couple books at most. So how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, for me, the big thing that was the turnoff, this was a couple of years before the 2008 recession, just so much for me personally, I was seeing GE relying on financing. You know, they were really big into the aircraft engines, the, uh, the healthcare systems, you know, the big machinery stuff that costs a lot of money. And more and more, they were kind of acting like a bank where GE would say, yeah, we're going to sell you this great, awesome thing, but we're also going to lend you the money to do it. That tends to work until it doesn't. 2008, it definitely didn't work uh, for any of the big banks out there. And and GE certainly fell prey to the same problem. So that was kind of the warning, the the red flag that got me out of GE. I don't actually own any GE shares anymore. Pretty good timing. Getting out of financial stock, essentially, even if it's you know considered an industrial, getting out of financials before 0809 is like pretty good. I mean, in more recent years, you've had a, a number of like really good calls. I was just like looking over them over the last couple of days. But if I recall, you're the one who recommended like Vale Resorts a while ago. I mean, what, probably a couple years or three years ago. And then like Nvidia, Illumina, Amazon. These are these are pretty successful investments if you've made them anytime in like the last like two or three years or even the last year. But you were pretty early on these. What led you to those investments? Oh gosh, well Nicholas, that's probably a two beer conversation right there. Yeah, <laughs> we can. Uh... Yeah, sure. Um, well, actually, do you want to start at like a high level, just kind of um, in general, like where do you find investment ideas, and then uh, kind of what's your process for like working through them to a point where you're looking at putting some real money into it? Sure, right. So, okay, good question. How do you find investments? I mean, there's basically kind of two things that are eternally conflicting with each other. Interestingly, 
uh, they're conflicting with each other, which is competitive advantage and disruptive innovation. Uh, these might not be, you know, uh, common vernacular. This isn't, you know, something that non-investors probably talk about so much at cocktail parties, but we certainly think about it as investment investment analysts all the time. Uh, the, the competitive advantage piece of this is what is a company doing right now that allows them to capture high profit margins or higher profit margins than their competitors can capture? And so you think of companies like a Google. Why is Google so much better? Well, because everybody uses Google as a search engine. So they get more information about what people are searching for and they can charge higher advertising rates than competitors can charge for. Facebook's the same way. The social network that captures their risk, competitive advantage that they have right now today that other companies do not enjoy. And it allows them to charge more money and enjoy excess profits margins over their competitors. So I say that that's, in con that's conflicting with the concept of disruptive innovation, which is when you have a competitive advantage, if you're the incumbent in an industry, you almost always are going to have smaller companies trying to beat you by playing a different game. This is something that Oracle has seen, you know, when people were moving from on-premise software to cloud based software. I mean, this is something that uh, you saw a lot with Cisco when people were stopping connecting things, you know, through wires and cables and going instead to wireless connected devices. I mean, there's always going to be someone who's going to try to come up with a disruptive idea to dislodge those companies that are already making a ton of money in the, in the, in the short term. So the, back to your question of how do you find companies? Uh, it's kind of an eternal conflict of saying, okay, which companies are going to be around and capture those margins, have those competitive advantages, if you will, for at least another decade, versus where do you see that pace of change, that trajectory of change uh, in an industry happening much more quickly, uh, that you don't see the status quo staying in place for quite as long. So that's kind of how I think about investing in stocks. There's kind of a spectrum, and I guess it's a sign of mastery to be able to run the run the entire end from purely moat based to high disruptive base, because like not everyone can think both ways like that. I mean, uh, Warren Buffett's basically got like his thing that he's got down, and I, I use Warren Buffett as like just kind of an example, but pe that people I think are more likely to know. He's very much like a moat guy, where he's focused on the defensive position of a company, and he's like betting against change in the world, whereas like a venture capitalist like look at something like an uber that could like disrupt you know a variety of industries like simultaneously and find that really attractive but probably buffett would never invest in an uber until it had like a long history of like proving cash flows or something Does that makes sense yeah absolutely you have to think about you know what are the what are the strong competitive advantages back to, back to the examples you gave of Vail resorts i mean you could try to build your own mountain but that's really hard and that costs a ton of money and still you're just competing against this this resort chain that's been around and is getting bigger and bigger, you'd have to beat them at their own game, basically. And that's a zero-sum game right now. You're not going to all of a sudden triple the amount of skiers every year. So that's that's not a business that tends to attract competition. Uh, NVIDIA is, is is the opposite. NVIDIA is going, some of their largest customers are basically IT folk that fix data centers and keep them up and running, uh, building chips that would do that automatically. You know, Google's trying to do the same thing with a lot of their processing units that they're building. But, you know, that's something that's very manual right now. It spends a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. It's very frustrating for a lot of folk that they, if you can find a way to automate that or make it easier, that's something that's willing to be a much faster rate of change. Amazon, the same thing. They've found value in delivering things to people's homes rather than having us good up and got out of the 
you know, get out of our house to go shopping for things that we need. I mean, e-commerce is a big trend for a reason, and they're getting better and better at doing that. You know, people are reacting accordingly. So I guess it's the, it's the matter of, you know, how strong is the competitive advantage and then how willing are customers to change it. Uh, I will say, on the other hand of that, that I personally think that network effects are the strongest competitive advantages. Uh, people don't tend to like to change their habits or the things that they've gotten accustomed to unless they have to. Banks have shown us this for decades, that it's really a pain in the neck to to switch banks, even if there's better rates somewhere else, you tend to not, not like to go through all the updating of your files and updating of your accounts and everything that's auto-drafting from your bank. I mean, that's one thing. The keyboard, Nicholas, is a great example of a network effect and a habit. Keyboards, the reason that we have keyboards laid out the way that they are is suboptimal. It actually slows us down typing on keyboards the way that, it, that we do in the English language. Because they originally intended it to be that way so that typewriters wouldn't get jammed. They didn't want people to type too quickly and get the typewriters jammed up. And still, here we are, you know, 50 years later, still using the same configurations for keyboards because those old habits don't die that people have gotten used to over time. So, I mean, those are just a couple of examples to kind of illustrate the point of competitive advantages versus how markets do change over time as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. At some point, I want to ask you about like a couple of like investment losers, but I think we'll probably circle back around to that in a little while. But for right now, are you down for a little game of buy, sell, or hold to blatantly rip off uh, Motley Fool's podcast? I was sure hoping you were going to ask to play this game today. I'm, I'm totally on board. I have no idea what questions you're going to ask, but I'm game. Let's get started. Okay. For you personally, buy, sell, or hold businesses with heavy capital requirements. As a new business or as an existing business? A uh, new business. Uh, that would be a sell for me. Those are very difficult industries to raise a lot of money to disrupt the incumbents in. Then how about for like an existing business, like a U.S. steel or something? Yeah, I mean, those are great. I, I personally think of railroads as pretty good investments because they're just the most efficient way of shipping stuff around. You know, you don't want to put coal and, and hay and agricultural goods on planes. It's too expensive. Uh, so they've got their place in the world. So, you know, something like that is, I think, very difficult to, to disrupt. I'd previously seen it as primarily a negative, so you know, learn something there. Buy, sell, or hold recurring revenue. Buy, buy, buy. <laughs> okay, why is that? <laughs> it's so much easier to keep an existing customer and sell them more than to find a new customer. Uh, in terms of the income statement, the acquisition cost of new, new customers is much higher than it is to just sell somebody that already trusts you and works with you something else. So anything recurring revenue, I mean, your Comcast cable bill. You pay it every month, you don't ask questions. Your AT&T cell phone bill, that's a recurring revenue you don't think twice about. Great business model. Buy, sell, or hold having more than 15% of your portfolio in a single stock? Um, that, that's a tough one for me to justify. I mean, that is a, a hold, hold, Nicholas, because um, it can go either way. It depends in my book. I mean, that's, that's a great way to build a ton of wealth. If, you, if that 15% is something like Amazon or or Netflix, you can become very wealthy from a very concentrated position. Uh, but what if that 15% is also Enron? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, three months later, you're, you're not feeling great. Uh, okay, so buy, sell, or hold technical analysis, which for listeners is uh, basically looking at a chart of a stock and attempting to infer uh, some sort of information about the company based on and the investment based on just what the picture of the chart looks like. Yeah, you know, that's a good question, too. I like this one, because if you had asked it to me five years ago, I would have said sell, that I don't think it, it, 
it contributes very much, uh, at least to a fundamental stock pick or somebody who looks at, you know, more things that are fundamental to the stock, the PE ratio, the, the free cash flows, things like that. But I'm going to actually say I'll hold for now because I do think it's an interesting data point. I think the technical analysis is more interesting now because so much of the world is based on algorithmic trading. Uh, we've got the bots that are now about 90% of the trading in the stock market. And I think that if you ignore what they're doing, then you're shutting off an important data point that you need uh, as an individual investor out there, which is, you know, why are they investing in those stocks? But, you know, is it just based on an index? Is it based on a valuation metric? Is it just an optimism in the stock market as a whole? I mean, there's some information that we can infer from just what the stock market is doing. I think it's an interesting data point, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the farm on, on technical analysis either. Yeah, I, I would probably have to agree with that. I think the two things that I see it as like, a, kind of like a defensive measure. So like if something's uh, basically going down and to the right, you know, like there's probably a reason for that and it might not be fully priced in. And, I, you know, I, I've made this mistake, right? And I'm like, I've lost a lot of money on them. So like not catching a falling knife is like a, it's a, a rule just to like keep me from making mistakes. And then two is like stocks hitting new highs. David Gardner at the Fool says like, uh, you know, water your flowers and pull your weeds, trim your weeds, right? I kind of look at it like that, where something's going up. Everyone hates to buy at the peak. So it might be a little bit cheaper than is even warranted. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good insight right there, is that companies that are getting stronger continue getting stronger. But if you see a stock price dip, it's not automatically a buying opportunity. You typically want to look twice at why that stock price fell in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then uh, last one. Uh, buy, sell, or hold, subscribing to one of the Motley Fool's many investment newsletters. Buy, 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 buy. Motley Fool Explorer is the, uh, the service that I run. It's, we look at a different investing trend every month. Uh, so shameless promotion, Nicholas, since you had me on the podcast. Absolutely. Those are welcome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what, what, is it, what does like an uh, individual trend look like? Yeah, so we, we typically, you know, as growth investors, growth style investors, we, we try to look at, you know, kind of like we mentioned just a minute ago here on your show, of what industries are changing right now and why is that interesting to investors and what are we seeing that can inform uh, people to make good stock investments that maybe a whole lot of the people aren't looking at right now. I can give a couple of examples if you'd be willing to hear me. I'd, I'd be more than willing, yeah. Uh, I think one of the biggest trends right now that's underappreciated in the stock market is the trend of personalized medicine. And what I mean by that is typically kind of when you go to the doctor and the hospital, since the beginning of time, it's been kind of more of the doctor will do an evaluation and a diagnosis of the symptoms that you're showing and then prescribe you a medication to fix those symptoms. It's very reactive and it's very subjective based on the doctor that you have. Different doctors will have different opinions about what you should do. But we're in a period now that the cost of genomic sequencing, which is basically a test of your DNA uh, or anything that's more individualized to you as a patient, is allowing a much more data approach. And this is very significant for the most expensive treatments, oncology, serious diseases, uh, where doctors can now be much more proactive and catch things much easier and earlier on that are showing up and manifesting uh, in these more data-driven uh, decisions. And, and so that's something like a DNA test, something like a genomic sequence. 
We're starting to see this appear. If you've seen the 23andMe's or the Ancestry.com kits that they can now ship you uh, directly to your home, I mean, that's an opportunity for people to learn more about things that they might be prone to rather than just kind of word of mouth conversations with your family. That's a very interesting trend to me right now. That is really interesting. Like, what's something you're looking at recently? Yeah, something else that, that kind of I've been thinking a lot about has been this concept of Moore's Law breaking down in computing. Uh, so all of our computers right now are, are kind of built upon economies of scale, right? Intel makes a smaller, more efficient pro microprocessor every year. And they keep coming out with new ones. And now, you know, we don't just have these mainframes or desktops anymore. We have laptops and then cell phones and smaller and smaller devices because the number of transistors you can pack uh, on an integrated circuit, you know, is is increasing so dramatically. But that's breaking down. It's It's not becoming economically justifiable to make smaller and smaller transistors and semiconductor uh, the whole semiconductor industry is kind of dependent on that as we get smaller and smaller devices and more and more powerful devices and so you've got people that are very smart folk from mit uh, from great universities that are working on this thing called quantum computing which is not a traditional computer uh, it's one that follows a different set of rules based upon a wave equation. It's not just a zero or a one binary output from a, a typical computer that we've gotten used to. It's a completely different architecture and one that's that's meant to handle very hard to solve problems that have very, very high numbers of inputs because it's not running them in series like a typical processor is. If all of that sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo, I apologize, Nicholas. <laughs> My overall outcome and, and thought about this, though, is that the traditional computing world is changing. And I don't know if that's good for companies that have built these giant integrated economy of scale fads like, like Samsung out there. I think it's going to have to change in the next couple of years. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, it's been a really good couple of years for a lot of chip maker companies. From, from from my standpoint, it's been traditionally a horrible business where you're on this sort of like evil treadmill of innovation. There's not like a lot of upside to innovating unless you're a small player. But like if you don't innovate, like someone else is going to eat your lunch within like, what is it, every two years, 18 months? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's this like step function shift in the industry and you have to stay on top of that. So you're even when you make money, like you're dumping tons of money into just staying up on things. But now, now there's like a physical limit on like how big chips can be. It, you, like a, I think a hydrogen atom or whatever is like one, uh, like 0.1 nanometers wide. And uh, current chips are like in the high single digits for nanometers. So like physically, there's only so far they can go for like the size of these transistors. You're like bumping against that limit. So then people like design custom chips. And this isn't really like what you're talking about, like quantum computing as much. But like, instead of having a chip that can do everything, people are making very specialized function chips, which I think is part of why um, NVIDIA has been doing well, because you can customize each chip pretty easily. I don't know, what, what, what do you think about that? Like, poke holes in my thinking. No, it's a great point. I mean, just, just like you're saying, very, very uh, task-specific chips. This is something called an ASIC, an application-specific integrated circuit, something like a self-driving car would need, something like a, uh, a Bitcoin mining you know, processor would be. It's something that is that is meant to be fine-tuned to do something very specific. Google's working on them to run their data centers, right. but you're optimizing something to be very efficient at it. Now, if you can tap into something like that, uh, or say a quantum computer that can handle very difficult problems through the cloud, 
you know, through something like an Amazon Web Services where you don't have to build it yourself. You can tap into somebody else who's going to spend all the money to build it. And you just rent it out by the hour or the day or whatever you want to. That's interesting. That brings down the cost of solving really, really hard problems. And I think that that can have a lot of implications for a lot of industries. Healthcare immediately comes to mind when you have drug developers trying to model uh, molecules of their drugs to to cure very serious diseases. I mean, yeah. we've got biogen right grail. now. Yeah, Alzheimer's, right? Yeah. I mean, stuff like that is now possible to model with a computer. And it's not just guesswork. It's very calculated. It's, it's very interesting to me. That's interesting. Yeah, I studied biochem in school, and at the time that seemed like a... Uh... Uh, yeah, like literally like a holy grail where people were talking about like, oh, yeah, like theoretically we could do this, but it, like it hasn't worked out for the last 30 years because there's always like a new, like, there's always a new complication. So, I mean, I and I haven't really been in the field for the last uh, like five years. So uh, you're saying this is like a thing you can do. They're getting there. I mean, there's a couple, there's a handful of companies that are leading the charge in quantum computing. I've seen, I've seen some great work done by IBM. Uh, building a quantum computer. You've got Google trying to work on their own quantum computers. They all have different kind of architectures depending on how you want things to look. A lot of startups are trying to build their own too, but this is difficult, man. I mean, these things have to be kept at absolute zero almost, you know, or, or in a vacuum. You can't have any interference from outside. So it's not like it's just like, oh yeah, we're going to go build a, a quantum computer in our basement and turn it on for the world to work with. I mean, this is a very intensive capital project, um, but we're getting there. I think within five years, we're going to start seeing them be commercially available. It'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I think you were probably a few years ahead and you're thinking about this stuff from what a lot of people would be. One of the guys I love to chat with is a guy named Worley. He's, he's working with a company now, Strangeworks, that he just founded. But before that, he kind of worked at Apple early on in the iPhone, you know, and the whole, the whole ecosystem that Apple built out to download stuff for, for the iPhone and stuff like that. And he kind of sees this same concept of an ecosystem for quantum computing. You know, one side of it is going to be this technical challenge. And, you know, that's going to get figured out by really smart businesses. But there's also this software developer piece of it, too, that once you have this thing, how do you get people interested in this? How do you get people actually start bringing up problems in a way that they can make sense of it? You know, Apple is so easy to go into iTunes and download music. They made a ton of money off of that, right? The iPhone was basically you bought the iPhone. You didn't have to configure 17 different iPhones. You just went and said, hey, I want the newest iPhone. Yeah. There's no, like, installing software. <laughs> yeah. The Apple takes care of all that for you in the back end. And the same concept could be true for a quantum computer. Hey, I don't want to know how this thing works. I just have a really hard problem that I can't do with a classical computer. Yeah, that's super interesting. So, yeah, those are interesting areas. And I, I always appreciate being like able to talk to different people. I work from home, so I, I get like uh, any social interaction and any any uh, conversations to like exchange ideas and learn things and throw out my own ideas and hear hear what, where their weaknesses are. Is I, I really appreciate it. So thanks for taking your time today, too. Uh, sure. One thing I'm curious about so I feel like uh, there's a lot of focus traditionally on what has worked for winners and like what made really successful investments and really successful investors uh, work. And you really hear like kind of a, you hear the, about all the glories and triumphs, but one thing that you don't hear about as much and that can uh, be a little bit more, I don't know, like immediately applicable is hearing about failures and uh, I guess like the loser investments. So uh, is that something you'd be willing to talk about at all? Yeah, absolutely. That's part of investing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's bigger for some of us than others. But uh, yeah, so maybe, maybe from something from kind of early on, what what's like a, a mistake you made and kind of what did you, how did that change your thinking of like your process or your approach to investing? Yeah, this is a great question because 
<laughs> you see so many investors out there just pounding their chests about how smart they are all the time, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you almost you have to. People, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of par for the courses for people to just focus on their winners and then, oh, well, we forget about the losers. Yeah. It's a cocktail party. Right. Yeah. It makes for better cocktail conversations. But, you know, you really are going to do your learning from the losers, at least if you're going to get better at things over time. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you almost have to embrace them. And the first thing that I'll throw out there is that typically our rule of thumb that we go by is that if you're really, really, really good as an investor, you're probably going to be right six times out of 10. You're going to beat the market six times out of 10, which means if you think about it the other way, that four times out of 10, you're going to look like an idiot because you're underperforming the rest of the market, right? Oh, yeah. You could you could buy an S&P index fund and just track the market. And 40% of the time, that's a better investment than trying to do it on your own. Yeah. Well, and that's for uh, if you're doing a really, really good job, right? I mean, I think most that's people right. are probably more on the uh, 60% of the time, they're going to be better off with an index fund. Sure. The thing that isn't captured in that statistic, though, is those 60% or 40% or whatever the number is that are winners, there is no ceiling on them. Mm -hmm. So a loser, the most you can lose is 100%. You can lose all your money on a bad stock pick. The other way, there is no ceiling on how much money Netflix or Amazon can make you over 10 or 20 years. And so over time, if you are an investor that's willing to take an appetite for risk and not sell and freak out when the market corrects, and hold on with conviction to your best ideas, your winners will make up for your losers. Uh, so that's the first thing to kind of think about in investing is, you know, how, how does the equation favor sticking with it over the long term? To your question, though, of, you know, let's talk about some losers and why they were losers. I would say the biggest mistake that I've made or, or the thing that I've, that I've really tried to focus on correcting as an investor of, of the time that I've done this is really get an understanding of why I'm investing in this company in the first place. It sounds so simple. It's really not. Uh, most of the time, my losers were I was interested in something that I thought had a whole lot of potential. But in reality, I was just buying into it because I thought there was a lot of buzz in the industry. Or it sounded like something that was going to be really exciting. Or it sounded like a slam dunk and... It really wasn't because I didn't yeah. understand how things worked. Yeah, it, it reminds me almost of like being drunk, like, like, <laughs> like you want to, you want to be able to think better, but like you can't. Like, there's just something in the air that like it like dulls the otherwise uh, like skeptical parts of your brain. Yeah, it's. I mean, you. There's always going to be a headline that's going to try to convince you that this is the next thing since sliced bread. That's going to be fantastic. You need oh, yeah. to invest in this right away. That's kind of how most of the financial media works. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as analytical, objective investors, we have to think about that in terms of, okay, is this really a huge opportunity or is there just a ton of money that's flowing into this uh, from people who really don't know how the industry works and might potentially be about to lose a lot of money? Yeah. One of the, the ones that I lost a lot of money on was um, years ago, there was a company called SunPower that was working on solar efficient panels. And I thought that sounded really great. And I put some money into them because I thought that solar was going to be the next answer. Uh, renewable energy sounded like that was a great opportunity uh, for utilities to get on board with. Mm -hmm. And in reality, this is a hugely, like you mentioned earlier, Nick, this is a hugely capital intensive industry. You have to keep improving every year to stay competitive with what else is out there. You've got to be competing against Chinese companies that are funded by the government and have tons of money at their disposal. Anyway, this company lost a ton of money. Um, 
I got out before the worst of it, but I still lost greater than more than half. I don't remember what the final number was. But again, my my thesis early on was, oh, this sounds like a big opportunity rather than looking at all those other things, you know, retrospectively of really thinking about how is this company going to make money? And maybe that's not as attractive as I thought. Interesting. So the market's there, but um, the ability to take advantage of it wasn't there. Yeah, the same thing is happening, I think, in, in recent years in Chinese investments. I mean, there was a ton of, of, of opportunity that everyone was getting pitched on of, of China. China's got 1.3 billion people now. The markets are huge. You know, yeah. if we just do exactly the same thing that we did in the U.S. and China, it's going to be easy to make a ton of money, right? Eh, not really the case. China's a different country that's got its own cultural set of rules. It takes a lot more work than just immediately saying, oh, big market, let's go after that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it just the whole like social and political structure is like entirely different. Like, Absolutely, just like the involvement in the in the companies and like the transparency is just like night and day. There's an interesting piece I was reading about uh, like investors in Asia more generally, and especially in China, tend tend to embrace a lot of trend following in their approaches, which is a super reasonable thing to do if you have no idea if it's going to be Enron or if it's going to be uh, Google. And uh, honestly, like sometimes like the best information you have is like in the price. So you have to manage risk like really tightly in that um, environment. Yeah, absolutely. How often do you find yourself uh, looking at investments and just saying no, no comment or like, yeah, I don't want to have to have an opinion about this? Yeah, I mean, to me, that's 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 credibility. You know, as an analyst, you. The financial media is littered with talking heads that want to have an opinion about every single stock in the entire market, which is fine. You know, people can. But if you want people to value your opinions on things, you can't just go out and, and say, oh, I'm super bearish on these 20,000 companies and super bullish on these 30,000 companies. I think that as an investor, it's good to have a diversification where you're not just buying three companies and holding on for dear life and hoping that you don't lose all of your money from those three. But I also think that it's important for us to kind of know the companies that we're putting our, our name to and our bylines on for the recommendations that we make. Um, so for me, I'm very comfortable to answer your question to say I don't know. Uh, the marijuana industry is one that, that right now I don't really have a strong opinion on. I could see it going either way right. where investors make a ton of money off of this because it's kind of like the tobacco industry. On the other hand, I could see it be something more like uh, the organic grocery industry. And I, and I don't know. My crystal ball is cloudy. I don't know which one of those plays out. Yeah, that's interesting. And yeah, I mean, I, for all of my uh, skepticism, I saw like I'm out there shorting anything. It, it's tough to short. Shorting is difficult because every company has got people trying to make their company better mm -hmm. uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, you're like betting against the potential. Oh, yeah, the cooperation of a large organization of people. That's right. Which like human history is a long story of that, of, of organizations succeeding and like making something bigger and more valuable, not going the other direction usually. Yeah, hopefully organizations aren't hiring employees that are trying to make their company worse every day. At least we hope not. Right. Well, you wonder about Sears, but otherwise... <laughs> okay, well, that's my cheap shot. Uh, I'm sure they're in a tough spot. Anyway, thanks thanks so much for taking your time. Do you want to give a last little plug for Motley Fool Explorer? How long have you been doing that? Well, well, sure. Yeah, thanks. This is my third year doing it, Nicholas. Again, Motley Fool Explorer, we look at a different trend every year. I'm sorry, every month. Um, you know, 12 per year. We have recently looked at kind of the shift in medicine and healthcare industry. We looked at how the finance industry is changing from uh, big bank lending to alternative lenders. Uh, we looked at China's mobile economy. Uh, we're looking at cloud computing. You know, these are kind of the trends 
that you hear a lot about out there, but we're kind of digging beneath the surface to figure out how they work and how investors can make money off of them. Okay, great. And uh, where can we send people to learn more about that? Uh, explore.fool.com would be a great place to start. Explore.fool.com. Okay, sweet. Thanks so much, Simon. I, I appreciate you uh, sharing your time today and helping educate me and a few other people along the way. Oh, it was a great pleasure of mine. Thank you very much for having me. Chris. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Thank you. Securities discussed in this podcast may be owned by Nicholas, his clients, Simon Erickson, or The Motley Fool, or its subscribers. The information contained in this podcast should not be taken as a recommendation to buy or sell, so do your own due diligence and research. If you like this episode, please feel free to leave a rating and review so other people can discover this podcast. If you're still listening, you might also like a few other conversations I've had about investing and innovation. I just picked four and had to exclude a couple people, including John Maroney. So sorry, John. Uh, but the four that made the cut, uh, just because of the focus of the conversation, are uh, Julianne Brands, Dan Whitaker, Bill O'Connor, and Tom Brady. Julianne is uh, with Oregon Venture Fund. That's what characteristics of great angel investments and founders. Uh, the kind of companies they have to look for. Uh, Dan Whitaker talks about the fundamentals of angel investing, kind of what the risks and returns look like, as well as uh, how entrepreneurs can fund their startups. Bill O'Connor, uh, he's got this really cool project going on called the Innovation Genome, where they're looking at the nature of innovation, how to create it, and kind of the history and how it's played out for other humans over time. And then uh, last is Tom Brady, who's figured out how to keep a, a corporate structure from crushing entrepreneurs and innovation. So any four of those I think are cool. You can find links in the show notes. Music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, who traveled back in time once to save Joan of Arc, or as the French call her, Jean d'Arc. I, I don't know. Uh, but I've, I've seen something with her name on it in French, and I was like, oh, wait, that's Joan of Arc. But it was like spelled Jean, uh, which is kind of dumb. So why don't, why don't we call her Jean? But they kind of say like, Jean, Jean, uh, Anyway, they, uh, they went back and they totally saved her from being burned at the stake, and it was most triumphant. But then they got back and they picked up a history book and they're like, bummer, man. I guess all that multiverse stuff is for real. We saved her, but just created a separate world. And probably because of the butterfly effect, they have like a double Hitler now. Like, who knows? So anyway, uh, they, they don't do that a lot anymore. Uh, but So you can find them performing around Portland, Oregon, or you can listen to them on Spotify, iTunes, or CEPDX.com. Thanks for listening.